on the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Irokti, a yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestian Echo. Vientolum againom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Today on the Indo Daily, adoption, allegations, and a deadly assault. The latest in the Molly Martin sentencing hearing. A packed courtroom number six in Lexington, North Carolina, is the stage where the sentencing hearing of Molly Martin's and her father Tom is being played out to the world's media. Prosecutors have accepted a plea bargain deal with the Martins over the brutal killing of Jason Corbett. The Limerick businessman was beaten to death with a metal Louisville Slugger baseball bat and a heavy concrete paving slab in his bedroom. I'm Fionn Sheehan and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined from Lexington, North Carolina by Southern correspondent for the Irish Independent Ralph Regal to unravel the latest developments in the plea bargain sentencing hearing. Ralph, is this case still getting extensive coverage uh, and is the courtroom still packed out? Quite a big courtroom, um, but there's a significant amount of media presence there. And certainly over the last couple of days, we're seeing an awful lot more people coming into it. You have quite a lot of people from Lexington who have been interested in the case um, since the beginning. You have quite a lot of supporters and neighbours and friends of the families that are there as well. And that has certainly increased over the last couple of days. And, and also, as we're coming into the end game of the sentencing hearing, there's a significantly greater media presence, both in the court and outside the court. For instance, last Friday, we had quite a number of sat fans from the US networks. And we're expecting that to be the case again in the in probably the last two days of the hearing. In the coming days, are you expecting that Jason Corbett's children will end up taking the stand and in what form? Yeah, I think they will. Um, we, we had a story in the Irish Independent about a year ago that uh, the two children were determined to testify in any retrial. So the two children will not be testifying per se, but given what we 
wrote about last year, they're determined to be part of the judicial process. And on that basis, they're going to decline an offer by the assistant district attorneys to deliver their victim impact statements on their behalf. Now, back in 2017, Jack Corbett did write a victim impact statement, but it was delivered on his behalf by an assistant district attorney. This time, we're expecting both Jack and Sarah to deliver victim impact statements in person. Yeah, so to, it, it, similar to our own system, this will be delivered by them as family members directly impacted by by this crime. And it isn't, it, it's not a cross-examination or a questioning. It's, they, they will deliver their statements uh, yes, to, it, to the judge. Simply, correctly, it, it's just, a, it's a submission to the judge, I suppose, to outline the impact on the family of the circumstances of the death of Jason Corbett on August the 2nd, 2015, and the ongoing impact on the children. Now, there will also be a victim impact statement that will be submitted by Tracy Corbett Lynch, of course, who is Jason Corbett's sister and who has been the lady that's been front and centre of the campaign for justice for Mr. Corbett. There's a victim impact statement going to be submitted on her behalf, and she will also be giving material um, to represent Mr. Corbett's parents. Of course, her mother died uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic uh, two years ago, but there will be a statement on behalf of the parents as well. Can you just take me to to yesterday? Because the the two kids are very central to this this case uh, in, in several ways. Yesterday, you had a psychologist who had examined Molly Martins, and he said the primary focus of her existence was to secure custody of the two children. Yeah, very much so, Fanon. Um, There was evidence last week in passing that it was said that Molly Martins had a laser-like focus on the two children. And Alan Martin, who is the assistant district attorney and who was actually part of the prosecution team where a conviction for second degree murder was obtained back in July and August 2017, he has made several references to the fact that Miss Martins was very much focused on the children and on adoption and on securing custody to them. And the key phrase that came out yesterday was no, the, the, the psychologist did not give direct evidence. It was something that Mr. Martins referred to during the cross-examination of one of the medical witnesses. And he said that basically the focus of Miss Martin's existence, even before she married Jason Corbett, was the two children, getting to adopt the two children and then to divorce Mr. Corbett and to retain custody of the two children. And of course, that's a very central tenant of the prosecution case because we learned that Molly Martins married Mr. Corbett in June 2011. And just weeks later, she went to a divorce attorney to determine what her rights were to the two children. To almost all of her friends who gave evidence last week, they almost all referred to the fact that Molly only stayed because of the children. Now, those friends maintained that it was an abusive relationship, that she was afraid of Mr. Corbett, but the the importance of the children has always been put forward. In fact, to the point where she went to a friend who happened to be a family law practitioner, and she told her certain things. She referred her to another expert, and Miss Martins was told that there is a special stipulation under North Carolina law, whereby once a child is 13 years of age, the court 
can hear the child if the child has a very specific request to live with one of their parents in the event of a separation. But that can only happen, and the judge can only take it into account when the child is at least 13 years old. And the prosecution made a significant, they laid significant weight on the fact that in 2015, at the time of Mr. Corbett's violent death, Molly Martins would have had to wait another five years before she could seek to do that because Sarah Corbett was just eight. Okay. And also, we, we've basically heard that, that Jason Corbett wasn't signing over adoption papers. So he, he, he married Molly Martins, but he, he wasn't given her uh, legal rights over the children. Correct. What was said on Miss Martin's behalf was that she considered this to be a breach of promise, that when she married him in June 2011, she expected to be allowed to adopt the children. Now, all that's been said about why Mr. Corbett wouldn't sign adoption papers was that one of the friends of Miss Martin's who gave evidence last week about the nature of the marriage and the relationship um, she said that Jason had displayed reluctance to do so. However, what we know from the family and from in 2017 was the fact that Jason Corbett was very concerned about his wife's history of mental health problems. He was, I think, very concerned about her history of falsehoods and telling lies and half-truths. And I think for the protection of the children, he seemed determined not to sign adoption papers. And that was despite the fact that Miss Martin's family had continually been putting him under pressure to sign the adoption papers. At one point, Tom Martins brought up the issue of adoption while they were playing golf and said, wouldn't it be a lovely birthday present for Molly? Um, I'd be willing to pay for the legal costs. At which point Jason Corbett said to him, don't, you know, don't bring this subject up again. We also heard that when Jason was at a Christmas gathering in the home of Miss Martin's brother, Bobby, outside Charlotte, he brought up the adoption issue and was joking. And what one of the witnesses said was jabbing at Mr. Corbett verbally to say, oh, you know, we all know what Jason's going to get Molly for Christmas. It's going to be adoption papers. So there was a lot of weight and a lot of importance attached by Molly and her family to the adoption issue because, of course, she knew if there was a separation and if there was a divorce, yes, she would get half the marital assets, but because she was not the biological mother of Jack and Sarah Corbett, the children would go with their natural father. And at the same time, Molly Martins was telling people that Sarah Corbett was her, her biological daughter, not, not just her stepdaughter. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary because um, I think that's become very important to the prosecution and certainly very important to the state in terms of countering some of the mitigation. Uh, the, the, the defense have said that, oh, well, Miss Corbett said this because she was told to do so by her husband, that it would be easier not having to go into the background of the death of his first wife. But what we've heard is that there's a catalogue of bizarre claims and lies that have come from Molly Martins over the years. And the prosecution have outlined these. Now, the first of them, of course, is the fact that she had claimed that she was the biological mother of Sarah. But even more bizarre is the circumstances in which she sometimes alleged this. She was once at a Bible study group and she not only said that she was Sarah's biological mother, but apparently she went into an elaborate uh, description of giving birth to Sarah and also the, the, the postnatal complications that she had suffered as a result. Of course, she never gave birth to Sarah. She claimed to have known Sarah's mother. She told her bridesmaids at her wedding that uh, 
Mags Corbett had begged her to look after her two children if anything should happen to her. Um, she went to Clemson. It's a very famous university here in the South. Uh, she, The prosecution said she washed out after less than one semester, uh, but she told all her friends that she was on the varsity swimming team, again, quite a prestigious sporting achievement here in the United States. She claimed to have been the editor of a magazine in Ireland so that she could become the, 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 the coordinator of a book club here in North Carolina. And she also claimed on her CV to have been a foster parent. And that's important because she traveled to Ireland two years after the death of Max Corbett to work as a nanny. But firstly, she had absolutely no experience of a nanny. She never worked as a foster parent. And what emerged after the 2017 trial, but which has not been mentioned during this current sentencing hearing, is that Miss Martins travelled to Ireland just a couple of weeks after being released from a psychiatric institution in Georgia. Can I take you back to an issue that has arisen over over recent days, and there has been a, a, a lot of discussion in 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 this regard uh, over and back, and that was the death of Jason Corbett's first wife, Mags Fitzpatrick. Can you just outline to us what has transpired there? Yeah, that's probably been the biggest bombshell of this hearing to date. And it has become the central element of the hearings over the last six days. Essentially, the, 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 the plea bargain arrangement opened with a statement from the various, um, from the prosecutors and from the defense teams. And Douglas Kingsbury, who was the lawyer for Molly Martz, he basically said that uh, not only did Mr. Corbett kill his first wife, but that his client, Molly Martins, feared that the same fate would befall her. So to counter that, the, the circumstances of Mags Corbett's death in November 2006 has become absolutely critical to the current hearing. Unfortunately, all the US medical experts that have been called, two for the prosecution, two for the defense, have taken issue with the post-mortem report that was submitted to the sentencing hearing from Limerick in respect of uh, Mrs. Corbett's death. All of them have described it as inadequate. Uh, one of them said it simply didn't meet the standards that you that modern standards that you would expect in the U.S. Uh, one of them pointed out that in terms of dealing with the cardiac um, findings, there's only 32 words mentioned, and four times or five times the word is the. Uh, in another section, there's only 30 words. Uh, they've also said that based on even that inadequate report. Three of the four witnesses said they don't believe that uh, Mrs. Corbett died of asthma. But of course, they, the, the critical elements was last week when Dr. George Nichols, he's the retired chief medical examiner of Kentucky, and he was retained by the prosecution to deal with the, the post-mortem report of Mrs. Corbett. And he basically shredded the report and said that a homicide was possible but not wholly probable. Now, of the four medical uh, witnesses, one of them, a Dr. Bill Smock, he's an expert in strangulation, and he was consulted by the defense team. He went the furthest. He said that it was probable it was a homicide and linked to manual strangulation. Now, all three other medical experts, including uh, Deputy Chief Medical Examiners in North Carolina, the former medical examiner in Kentucky, and another individual who's an expert in emergency and law enforcement and uh, medicine, they've all said that no, 
the best we can say, given the inadequacies of the Irish report, is that the death was undetermined. But one of the defence witnesses countered by saying, well, look, the Irish pathologist's report has opened the door, and that's why we're discussing the possibility of homicide. And that has been very important because it goes towards not only the belief of Mrs. Martins, but also the state of mind that she was in leading up to the tragic events of August the 1st and August the 2nd, 2015. What has the reaction been from Mags Fitzpatrick's family to this testimony and, and this issue being being discussed so openly in the court? I think it, it's outrage, um, Fanon. I think that they're deeply hurt. You know, it has been a very, very difficult week and a half for the Corbett family. Um, there's no words of mine, I think, can describe the pain and the grief that they're going through at the moment and having to listen to some of the material that's been presented before Judge David Hall. But it has also been a very, very difficult week for the Fitzpatrick family because, of course, the circumstances of their beloved um, daughter and sister are being dragged up again after 17 years. And like they spoke about the lies that were told about um, the circumstances of Mag's death, the lies that were told about the circumstances of Jason Corbett's death. And they went further and they actually thanked Jason Corbett for the efforts that he made on the night to try and save Mag's when she got that respiratory attack. And while it might seem absolutely extraordinary to an Irish audience, there has been absolutely no mention in court of the fact that Mrs. Corbett was with her sister. She was not alone with her husband. She was with her sister, Catherine, and she was with her husband when she got the respiratory attack. Her sister uh, offered to mind the two children, who were two years and under, while her husband desperately drove her to meet an ambulance, which was coming from University Hospital Limerick. Mrs. Corbett stopped breathing in the car. Mr. Corbett performed CPR. He got a pulse back. He handed her over to the paramedics. Unfortunately, she stopped breathing again in the ambulance and she was pronounced dead shortly after arrival at University Hospital Limerick. So the circumstances, extraordinary as it may sound, are not being fully explained. All we've been all we've heard is the difficulties and the challenges over determining the precise cause of death. We were not told who was with uh, Mrs. Corbett when she got that fatal attack and the obvious implications that has on the, the manner and the cause of death. Now, is it fair to say that the Martin's defence has basically been structured around putting Jason Corbett on trial? Absolutely. The Corbett family were quite prophetic. Um, a couple of years ago, I remember doing a story and their prediction was that uh, having taken Jason Corbett's life, um, the Martins, well, Tom and Molly Martins in particular, were now going to try and take his good name and reputation. And in essence, legally, that's what they have to do. The only way that they're going to mitigate the sentence that could potentially be handed down is by going towards self-defense and attacking the character of Mr. Corbett. The tragic thing about it is that they're the ones that are on trial. So Tom and Molly are actually on trial. They're in a sentencing hearing for voluntary manslaughter. But if you listen to the evidence, you would actually think that they are the victims. And it sounds as if Mr. Corbett is the one that's on trial. And what's sad is, tragic, is that there doesn't seem to be anyone in the court to defend his good name and reputation. Whatever Molly Martin says is 
effectively being treated as gospel in the open court. Now, I'm sure Judge Hall, he's a very experienced former prosecutor. He has been very diligent and very fair in handling this hearing. And I'm sure he will weigh everything up and look at the, the totality of the evidence. But certainly the way the volume of evidence has gone over the last couple of days, it's been mostly uh, defense uh, witnesses and it has almost exclusively portrayed uh, Mr. Corbett as being an abusive husband. The fact that it was a very strained marriage, that he subjected his wife to various types of, of, of behaviors, and further, that he was willing to leave use his children and his second wife's love of the children and her fear of losing custody of them as leverage within the marriage. Can you tell us about the, the testimony of Billy June Jacobs and, and who is she? Yeah, Billy June Jacobs was a friend of uh, Molly Martin's. She would go walking with her most days. Um, she was a person that lived within the General Wahlberg Meadowlands community, which of course is where Panther Creek Court is located. That's the property that Mr. Corbett was living in with Molly Martin's and with his two children. It's also the property where he was beaten to death in the early hours of August the 2nd, 2015. Now, Miss Jacobs uh, was a very close confidant of Molly Martin's, and she told the court that she would walk with her every day. They would share intimate details of their lives, both were having difficulties with relationships. So they would share stories and experiences and whatever. And Miss Jacobs was was adamant that um, it was an abusive relationship, that Mr. Corbett, in her words, was abusing his wife, that she was afraid of him, that uh, there was not just verbal, but that there was also physical um, abuse, according to stories that Miss Martins told her. And uh, Miss Jacobs also said that she had repeatedly urged Miss Martins to leave, but that she would, her friend told her that she would not do so without the two children. Now, as, as we reach the, the closing uh, stages, who are we expecting to hear from today? We are expecting witnesses today, uh, character witnesses in favour of Tom Martins. Now, of course, Tom Martins was over 30 years in law enforcement. He retired from the FBI. He then went to work as a counterintelligence operative with the Department of Energy. Uh, and we expect to hear a lot of former workmates and work colleagues coming to talk as to his character. In the July-August 2015 hearing, we had just one individual who gave character evidence on behalf of Mr. Martins, but we're expecting an awful lot more to give evidence today about his life, his career, his commitment to his family, and generally the type of individual that he is. And my thanks to Ralph Regal. I'm Fiannon Sheehan, and today's episode was produced by Gareth Mulhall with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from ABC News. You can keep up to date on this story online at the Irish Independent. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. And if you've been affected by this podcast, there are a list of helplines available by searching someone to talk to at the Irish Independent. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel, 0818-715-715.